Open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. As we conclude this chapter and look forward to the last chapter and what has been, a, at least for me, a very encouraging and helpful study from the Word of God. Let me begin by reading in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, make sure then that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. But he is to glorify God in this name. What name? The name of Christ, the name of Christian. Now for our text this morning, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Father, help us as we come to your table and your word this morning with the psalmist to behold wonderful things from your law, from your word, and that that word would do its powerful work in our hearts, in our minds, in our will, in our affections. And may we trust you as we just sing more and more. Father, whatever you bring, we know, will be for our good and for your glory. So help us to trust you, even in these difficult verses this morning. May we trust you. May we rejoice in what you are doing in us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Suffering is one of the great uniting factors among everybody in this room. We may be as different as night and day. We may be as different as night and day from people all around the world, but for all humanity, suffering is the great uniting factor in the human experience. We all have it, and none of us like it. Suffering is ever-present, regardless of time, regardless of place, regardless of status. We all go through times of suffering And none of us enjoy it. We don't pray for it. We don't wake up each morning saying, I hope I suffer today. Why? We are suffering adverse people. But do you ever stop to ask yourself, why am I so adverse to suffering? Why do we dislike it? Why do we fight against it? Why do we try to keep it at bay as best we can? And there's a simple answer if you were to ask yourself that question and then open your Bibles, and that is this. God did not create us for suffering. 
He created us for life and life more abundant. It is sin that has created the suffering. And even as Peter here has prepared you and I in our day and age, just as he did the original readers of this letter, as he has prepared these Christians for the inevitability of suffering for Christ, he moves on this morning in these what might sound like on the surface, having read them as difficult verses, but he moves on to actual encouragement in these three verses. In verses 17, 18, and 19. It's as if Peter is saying to these Christians, and he's saying to us this morning, in essence, your suffering Christian is not in vain. Now, if you are not a Christian, let me begin by saying this this morning, your suffering is in vain. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, every bit of suffering you have in this lifetime is in vain, and the suffering you will experience in eternity will be even more in vain and infinitely worse than any suffering you can imagine here and now. So if you are not a Christian, Peter has no encouragement for you this morning. Only this, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee to Christ. Trust Christ. Because if you do not, your suffering is in vain. But believer, our suffering is not in vain. And our suffering is temporal. Because we have life and life more abundant coming. And so Peter writes to encourage believers and yet at the same time to sober the thinking of unbelievers in this text this morning. Both of which are very positive things. Even though we are not created for suffering, brothers and sisters, and suffering is part of our lives, even as believers... Suffering is part of the curse. Suffering is part of the punishment of the world for its sin against God, for its cosmic rebellion against its creator. Christian, we can hope in this. Though there is suffering, God has a redeeming purpose for our suffering. It's not wasted. It's not accidental. God uses suffering for our Good. And so to that end, I want you to see two encouragements that Peter offers to his readers and to us by proxy this morning in these verses. Number one, the encouragement that God uses suffering. God is going to use whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you have been through, and whatever it is that you will go through. God is going to use that. That's encouragement number one. Encouragement number two is this. Because God will use it, your suffering will be different than the suffering of the lost world. It won't be the same. There will be an outcome that God will use. And so God uses suffering, number one. Number two, our suffering will be different. Those two encouragements make up the content of verses 17 through 19. Let's begin by looking at verse 17 this morning as we dig in. Encouragement number one, God uses suffering. One of the forgotten and most overlooked treasures of knowing God is the purpose for which God does anything. Knowing God is not simply accumulating facts, but understanding why God does anything that he does and why God does everything. Why does God do anything? 
And why does God do the things that he does do? And we could answer that question along with the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And in that we see God at work. And it is this, that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Therefore, we must conclude that everything God does is preparing us to that end, that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever. To be made ready to offer him greater worship and greater glory. Whatever God does, brothers and sisters, he does for a purpose to glorify himself. And that probably presents for most of us a fundamental necessity to change the way that we think. Because we want to think of life and all that we go through as revolving around us, don't we? I'm at the center. Why does this matter to me? What is going on? Does he care about me? Is it, how does this involve me and why and me and all of these things? Rather than thinking God is doing something in us so that he is more glorified by us. That, that's the biblical worldview. When, when Paul gets to the end of Romans 11, which might be one of the most glorious explosions in Scripture, short of Genesis 1... Paul has just elaborated on God's work in redemption and salvation for 11 chapters. And he just explodes and says, For to him and through him and for him, all things, to him be the glory. Not how does it affect us. How does it affect him? And so that's the the answer that we must have in our mind. Why does God do anything that he does? To glorify himself. Now, make no mistake about it, Christian. When our... Mind and our thinking and our lives are aligned with that purpose that, God, whatever it takes for you to be glorified, for worship of your name to be increased in my life, let it be. Then trust me, it will be for our good. We will do as the, as the, the catechism says, we will begin to enjoy God forever if that is our heart and that is our goal in life, to be aligned with him. Everything God does then is done with the purpose of more accurately creating a reflection of himself. When we look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we understand that God is creating, and we say, oh, how cute and beautiful and wonderful all the animals and the plants and all of this is. Yes, but do you realize what it is? It's a picture of God. It's a demonstration of his power and his glory and his omniscience. And his sovereignty. We are seeing God at work and we're learning about who God is in creation. The end is not creation. The glory of the creator is the end of creation. And so God does everything from the beginning all the way through the end to create a better and more accurate reflection of himself. That's true of our suffering. God is going to use our suffering to refine us, to create in us a sharper mirror image of himself. So that our lives more clearly look like Jesus, that we more accurately reflect the the beauties of God, the glory of God, so that others then see him in us. And suffering is hard. Suffering is difficult. 
but it has a good and honorable purpose and end. You know, there's going to come a time in all of our lives at the end of time when we look back at every second of human history and we will say God was doing something in that moment. He was doing something. Now I can see it. He was doing something that more accurately demonstrated His character to me, to those around me, in some way or another. I see now what God was doing. And I think probably for most of us, we can point to something in our life that was painful, that was suffering. But we look back now and say, you know, God used that. That was a pivotal moment in my life. God used that to tune and sharpen the reflection of Himself in my life. As we study the work of God throughout Scripture, we find that God clearly at times is redeeming His people, isn't He? Seas open up. Philippian jailers cry out to the Lord. God at times in Scripture is so beautifully redeeming His people. And we see His sovereign grace at work. We see people like Paul who hated God, who were doing their best to eliminate the very knowledge of the Messiah, going and murdering churches. And God stops him in his tracks on a dusty road and says, bow the knee, Saul. And God redeems him. And then there are other times when we see God clearly acting in judgment against sin. An ark that is sealed. People who desperately cling and bang on the door for life and rescue from these things called floods that they'd never experienced. We see judgment upon Pharaoh and his army. We see judgment upon the nation of Israel. We see judgment upon individuals in Scripture. And we look at that and we say, but is God's? Yes, God is still in control. And yes, God is still doing the very same thing He is doing in redemption as He is in judgment. He's bringing glory to Himself. He is sharpening a view of Himself so that in judgment people understand God will not be mocked. And I guess if I have a concern for the world we live in today is that we're about to learn a very hard lesson. God will not be mocked. He won't be. He will be glorified, whether by salvation or whether by judgment. He will sharpen all of our view to understand and know more of who He is. By whatever means. Is that cruel? No, that's good. That's good because then we are made into his image more and more. Robert Johnstone writes in his commentary on 1 Peter and he says this, God deals as judge with all sin committed by any of his moral creatures. How does he do it? By suffering. So how does that make sense? How is is my salvation a result of suffering? Do you forget the one who hung on a cross for you? Your salvation came directly through suffering. And only through suffering. And so God has always used suffering and he will continue to use suffering in order to give us and the world a better view of who he is. 
in the latter verses here in the text this morning as Paul deals with, I mean, sorry, Peter deals with unbelievers. The fact that God punishes isn't something that Christians should shy away from. You know, that's been one of the big, I don't know, understand why. But for the Christian church, it's been one of the big challenges to be faithful in evangelism. Because we want to somehow, don't talk about a God who actually punishes sin. Don't talk about that. Makes him look mean. To the point now where we have entire theological systems that say the God of the Old Testament that did all that was a different God than the New Testament. Because certainly God is love. Yes, God is love. He is love for his own glory. And he is love for his own son. And God loves himself and rightly so. And he loves his glory and his purity and his majesty will not be challenged. And so we should rejoice in God revealing sin and cleansing sin and refining sin and punishing sin wherever it is because it is an affront to him. But again, that goes back to our worldview. Are we at the center or is God at the center? Do we care more about how it affects God or how it affects mankind? We must say that God matters infinitely more. And if that's the case, then suffering and how God uses that is good, right, brothers and sisters? It's right. He wants the world he created to look like the one who created it, and he will stop at nothing to do that. And what makes Christians uncomfortable with this verse is that Peter begins with how God uses suffering, not in the world, but in us. Didn't we get out of that when we got saved? I mean, doesn't Jesus make us happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise? I mean, isn't, aren't we like poor Richard's almanac? Isn't that the Christian? No, it's not. Not even close. Notice what Peter says. For it is time for judgment, for suffering, to begin with the household of God. We understand, we applaud, and we agree when God pours out His judgment on the world. Wouldn't we? I mean, we say, yeah, they deserve that. I mean, fill in the blank with whatever obvious perversion and spitting in God's face that you see in the world today. And at times, it's easy to go, yeah, judge that. Stop that. But let's talk about your sin, Brian. Let's talk about your sin, Christian. And all of a sudden, we start going, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, I claim the blood of Jesus. No suffering for me. Yeah, but you're not quite like Jesus yet. There's something I see that needs to be dealt with. There's something among the people of God that needs to be removed. So that you too portray a better reflection of who I am. We, 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 we naturally shy away from the thought that God judges us. Now listen, when I say God judges us, I'm not speaking of eternal, permanent punishment for sin i'm speaking of the disciplining punishment of a parent for a child every parent in here 
has disciplined their child, every one of us. But we don't do it so that they can be thrown out. We do it so that they can be kept in. So that they, they experience joy and peace and harmony with the family, right? Same with the father. He's not judging us in the sense of eternal. He already did that upon Christ for all who have believed in Christ. Christ has taken the, the, the criminal punishment for us. But that doesn't mean he won't use suffering to refine us in that ongoing, maturing, growing process. As John Stone again points out, these judgments, these punishments, these sufferings, brothers and sisters, are only intended to prepare us for heaven. He says this, quote, These judgments belong only to this earthly life. End quote. In order to prepare us for that life. We're just being prepared for heaven. When God knocks the rough edges off of you, when God exposes sin in your life, when God punishes sin in your life, know this, He's only preparing you for heaven. That's an affirmation. That is an assurance in our life that we have a father who would do that. Hebrews 12, 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Who are the ones that need to worry? The ones who experience no refining in their life. The writer of Hebrews says they are illegitimate children. They don't belong in heaven. So when God scourges us, when the household of God, when it begins with us, when we suffer and are refined from sin, we can say, praise God, that's an assurance that I am his child. He's preparing me for eternity with him. Could it be better? No. No greater truth than that. So why do we shy away from this truth? Well, perhaps it's a wrong understanding of justification. We thought when God justified us and declared us righteous and declared us part of his family, that that ended anything bad in our lives. That's not true. You won't find that in Scripture. Perhaps it's a wrong understanding of how sanctification works. By sanctification, we mean spiritual growth. It's supposed to be easy and natural. Did you grow up physically without any pains? No. It involves changes, all kinds of changes. Some of them hurt those muscle cramps when you're growing physically, those emotional trials you go through as you're growing up and you experience the cruelty of the world around you. And it it involves pain, suffering. Perhaps we get it wrong because we're loath to admit it, but let's be honest, maybe we're tinctured with more of the prosperity gospel than we'd like to admit. We do expect God to make life easy on us. I mean, after all, we're not only Christians, we're American Christians, and we're not supposed to suffer. I know none of us in this room would would say, yep, that's how I think. But let's be honest, maybe that's why we struggle with this. Maybe we think that way and aren't even aware of it. But whatever we might think about this, God's good plan, according to Peter here, is it will begin, judgment will begin with the household of God and use the suffering for the good of his own children. I want you to notice the text, though. Say, man, I could have stayed in bed and been this encouraged. But let me point out several critical implications that are made by Peter 
for believers here. And I just want you to come up for air for a moment as we're thinking about God's refining fire in our life. And I want you to notice the implications that should encourage you. Number one, we are God's household. That's good news, number one, right? We're not out there. We're in here. Thumbs up. Number two, we are recipients and adherents to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. They are not. We are. There's something to be thankful for. Peter contrasts number three, the godly and the godless. And the household of God are represented by godly people. Praise God for that. Encouragement number four or or implication number four. It is God's will carried out in all the faithful and glorious tensions of his own nature. Let, Let me say it another way. This is God at work and God, according to verse 19, is a faithful creator and he cannot fail. That means his judgment and his wrath for sin will never overcome his love and his promises for his children. That's good news. All of those perfections of God, the attributes of God, will never exclude one another. They will always be held together perfectly. So we can rejoice in that. Salvation and judgment are held in tension together, but never one to the exclusion of the other. And fifthly, Peter emphasizes again that truth that he is a faithful creator, both of body and of soul, and he cannot do anything except that which is right. So when we're suffering, brothers and sisters, it will be painful. I'm not going to say it will not. But one thing we must always tell ourselves, he is a faithful creator who will always do what is right. It doesn't matter what the fire is that's refining us. The one who sent the fire is right. And he's going to be faithful in everything that he does. And so as we understand these things, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't look at that and go, man, judgment's going to begin in the household of God. Let's run and hide and maybe he'll forget we're his children. Not possible. He will refine his children. And we cannot hide, nor should we desire to hide. And maybe that brings up a second challenge for us, believer. Why would we want to hide? Why would we want to hide? We have been eternally secured in Christ. There is no danger. Listen to me. If you are a a believer this morning and you are here and you're hearing this and you are bothered and your assurance is wavering and you are scared of God's judgment, can I say to you that if you are a child of God, there is no danger of you being cast out. Let me remind you that there is no way your father will destroy you. He won't. He can't and still be a faithful God, which he is and has been and will be. What what you will endure is simply in Christ. Don't forget that you are in Christ. You You are not being refined outside of Christ, but in Christ. Therefore, you cannot be lost. As painful as it may be, realize this, not in anger, but in love, God is shaping you. 
You are in Christ. Therefore, God is no longer angry with you. He loves you in his son and will shape you to look more like his son. That's good news. We shouldn't then despise suffering. But why do we? I think suffering is made more painful, good and useful as it is. Are you listening? This is going to hurt. It's like the doctor. There's a little poke coming, okay? We struggle with this because you love your sin more than you love the idea of being more like Jesus. And so do I. We don't want to be found out. We don't want the pain of refining. Because to be honest, we kind of enjoy our sin. More than we do desire to be like Jesus. Because if we loved being like Jesus, we would be praying, Lord, whatever it takes, refine me to look more like him. But that's not how we pray most of the time. We go through seasons, no doubt, where we pray like that. But all the time we should say, Lord, refine me. What is it in my life today that is sinful? And like I've told you before, there are prayers that you can pray if you are a child of God. And I can promise you 100% of the time, God will answer exactly with what you ask for. You say, God, reveal sin in my life to me. Guess what? He'll show you. He will show you your sin. Because he desires you to be rid of it. And fit for heaven where there is no sin. Made more like his son. Lord, give me somebody to share the gospel with. I can promise you there will be opportunity. Because he wants the good news of his son to be spread abroad. Suffering for the Christian is viewed, I think, as painful because we love our sin and our pride hates the humiliation of the refining moment. Our fear of man cares more about what we think of ourselves and what others think of us rather than thinking about what God has planned for us and that being to glorify Him, to look more like Him. We don't want to deal with sin because we struggle with forgiveness and reconciliation among each other. And we don't want to have to deal with those things. It's painful. And yet without these things, we would accept as good Indwelling sin. Just let it remain. If God doesn't do those things, what we're saying is, God, we'd rather just keep the sin and not have it purged out of us. But contrary to the previous verses, notice what Peter says. If you suffer as a Christian, how does a Christian suffer? A Christian suffers because God is refining him. And Peter says, you are not to be ashamed. Just a couple of verses previous. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So if you suffer, there ought be no fear. There should be no fear of man. There should be no fear of these things. We should, we should embrace what God is doing. So how do we rejoice in that? How do we rejoice in suffering that is intended for the household of God in order to purify us and make us more like the Father. 
Now, I know it's bad form to answer a question with a question, but I'm going to do it. How is it that we rejoice in this purifying work of God in our lives? Here's the follow-up question. Why is it that you desire to be saved? Can I ask you that question? Answer that in your own mind right now, honestly. Why do you desire God's salvation this morning? Is it simply to avoid going to hell? Is it simply to gain heaven? Or do you desire God's salvation to be rid of sin? Because sin is an affront to God. Why do you want to be saved? I don't want to go to hell. Bad reason. Or let me say it this way. Insufficient reason. Why do you want to go to heaven? Well, because it's awesome. Have you ever read about it? Insufficient reason. We should desire our salvation because it purifies us from the sin which is an attack upon our God. Does it grieve you that you have offended God, Christian? Perhaps the difficulty with rejoicing, even in our discipline, is that we really don't desire to be rid of sin. As I said, we love it. God wants us to be rid of sin. We ought to want to be rid of it because He wants us to be rid of it. Not reduced in our sin. Not Okay, God, I'll tell you what. I'll cut that out 75% of the time. Or even 99.9% of the time. No, to be rid of sin. Completely done away with. Every bit of remaining sin. And when that is our goal, we can rejoice in suffering because God is doing that. He's removing sin from us. He's revealing something about us that we find contrary to Him. And so we're able then to rejoice because God's doing the thing we really want, which is what He really wants, and that's to make us more like Jesus by removing sin. So then by whatever means and in whatever circumstances, we can rest and we can rejoice in the fact that judgment will begin with the household of God. There is a positive purpose for suffering. God is using suffering for a very positive result. Now notice the contrast. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? If it is difficult for a Christian to reconcile and wrestle with suffering, it is impossible for an unbeliever because there's no good reason. There is no positive outcome. God is not refining them. God is crushing them because he will not tolerate rebels. And this is how we must couch our gospel thinking and presentation to people You are a rebel against God. You've not simply chosen pathway B, which is a little lesser than pathway A. No, you are a rebel at war with God, and he will not tolerate that. He will crush that. Read Revelation 19. You must believe. You have no other alternative. 
God is coming for you. You have a target on your back, sinner. And God will destroy you. Well, He hasn't destroyed me yet. I know people in their 80s and 90s who curse God. Yeah, that's a very brief thing. God will exact His judgment. Don't be a fool. Turn to Christ. Peter is saying, can you imagine, Christian, it is so hard for you. Can you imagine those who are still in their sin and their rebellion against God? But it's true. Christian, you can rest assured. Non-Christian, you cannot. God never forgets. God never takes days off. God will be true to his promise to judge that which is an affront to him, which is contrary to his nature. God is purifying you, Christian. God is destroying you, unbeliever. What a terrible thing, the suffering that awaits them. And yet, God's still using it. Do you know how God is using it? To bring glory to his name. That's where we started. That's, that's the beginning and the, the core of all things, that God will be glorified. God will be glorified in one of two ways, in your salvation or in your destruction. One of two ways. Your sin will either be resolved in Jesus or your sin will be resolved because it is destroyed in you. One of those two ways, God's going to be glorified. There is no third way. And so Peter says, just imagine, Christian, to put in perspective, you think it's bad. Imagine that. And it's not only wrath, but it is multiplied wrath. It is compounding interest wrath. Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing this, that the kindness of God is created, Paul says, to lead you to repentance. And yet you're going, well, you had not killed me yet. What a foolish thing to say. Verse 5, Romans 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, Revelation 19, who will render to each person according to his deeds. That is not good news. But I've been a good person compared to God. Well, compared to my neighbor, didn't ask you about your neighbor. In the day of his judgment, not your neighbor's judgment, not Hitler's judgment, not Stalin's judgment, God's judgment. What a terrible thing. Peter makes it clear that the fundamental deed for which they are held accountable and judged is this, that they do not obey the gospel of God. Now, isn't that interesting? They didn't obey the gospel. It doesn't say they didn't believe it. They didn't obey it. You know why? The gospel is not an invitation. And we've got to put that out of our mind. The gospel is a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus himself, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is not time for namby-pamby. Well, would you like uh, french fries with that invitation? No. Believe or face judgment. If you want to know why, Churches are weak in their evangelism. They don't preach the gospel. They soft-pedal it. And it's almost as if, well, you can accept, you can take it or leave it. Would you like to? 
You ever find Jesus? The apostles? Even the deacons in the New Testament preaching that way? Not on your life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, you must be born again. Today, or face the wrath of God. That is the preaching and the gospel proclamation that turned the world upside down. Not weak evangelifish preaching like we have today. Believe you must. Why do they not obey the gospel? Many reasons. Some rejected the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. Some refused to confess their status as being utterly depraved and helpless sinners, completely in need of an exclusive Savior and His righteousness alone. Don't want to confess those things. Some refused to receive God's mercy and grace because they want to do it themselves. But notice what Peter says. It is the gospel of God. It is the good news belonging to God. Hebert points out that the highlight here of their depravity is rejecting the very kindness of God. God has commanded them to receive a gift. And they cross their arms and say, no, I'm not receiving that gift. No, I'm going to spit in your face. You bring me a gift, I'll give you a cursing. How do you like that? That's the mentality. God has brought a free gift. He did not come to these people and say, clean up your life morally, be a better person, and then I'll save you. Yeah, nobody's buying that. But God comes and says, here is my only son offered to you in his own blood with an empty tomb to prove my claims. Believe that. It cost you nothing to buy your salvation. I believe in that. What a depraved wretch would spit in God's face when he offers such a glorious salvation. What rebellion? What sin? Peter says, if you think it's bad for you, imagine doing that. It is going to be infinitely worse. You can't even imagine how bad it's going to be. The utter hatred and out-of-hand rejection of the gospel. It's the absolute antithesis of Abraham. I love Abraham. You know why I love Abraham? Because of his simplicity and his faith. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed all of the nuances of the doctrine of Paul and Peter as they fleshed it out, and it was credited to him as righteousness. No. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him righteousness he just believed God he didn't even have all the promises fleshed out yet and yet he says God if you're the one saying it I believe it because I believe you that's what we're called to believe and yet they've rejected that and it's going to end in verse 18 and 19 the despair of this reality for them Christian if our suffering is this painful and it And yet it is immersed in the overflowing love and goodness of God to refine us. What about those who reject him? It's unthinkable. The position of the ungodly and the the fruit that they are going to 
feel. And now that just hangs on us. Verse 18, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man? The Greek literally could be read the anti-God man and the sinner. The one who is anti-God. What's going to become of him? And Peter, as it moves into verse 19, Peter just leaves that hanging on you. There's no resolution. Peter doesn't try to lighten the mood. (laughs) Peter just lets it hang. The sobriety of sin, the sobriety and reality of hell, the sobriety of rejecting God's good gift of salvation. He lets it hang as the counterweight of your hope, Christian. Because God uses suffering, our suffering is going to be different. The second encouragement is this, our suffering is going to be different, Christian. He's contrasted that. And now we move to verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The thrust of this second encouragement is not the action of the one who is believing, but the action of God toward them. That makes all the difference. It's not faith in their faith that's going to make the difference. This person's got great faith. This person's got little faith. As Sinclair Ferguson says, it doesn't matter. They still have the same strong Savior. And it's him that's in view. He's the object. And this makes all the difference. It's faith in him. It's like Abraham just believing him. Just, hey, you're God. Whatever you say goes, I trust you. The promises and all their detail and beauty and power, that's just a bonus. But you're God. I believe you. Whatever you say goes. He's God, and this means that He is faithful. It means He's a creator. God is always creating. Never forget that, brothers and sisters. God never changes. He always does what He always has done, and what has God always been doing since the beginning? Creating. Whether it's a physical world or spiritual beings, God is creating us in Christ, and He will continue to create sinners and shape them into His own image. And He can only do what is right. And that is the suffering heart. That's the, that's the center and the core of this. We're purified by the trials God sends because we are part of His faithful work of creating and redeeming. Christian, don't despise your suffering then. Know who holds it in His hand. That's a better way to handle this. Don't go, I hate suffering. What's the quickest exit out of here? Rather, look to God and say, I know you're holding this in your hand, God. And I know while it's painful, it's being used, and it's being used for my good, unlike the suffering of the lost. So I praise you, God, for that. You want an application of, for your sufferings in, in life? Let me give you, how do we apply this? Rest. Completely trust. Find yourself at peace and God's care and who God is and the fact that God is preserving you, Christian. 
That's the application of this rest. Peter, Peter wants these Christians who are undergoing persecution not to just fall apart, but just to learn to rest even as you're being persecuted. While the flames burn out the remaining sin in your life, just rest. It's not forever. You know that. Jesus paid the forever punishment. This is just a temporary refining. Kind of like a sickness in this life. It passes. Why? God's using a flame. He's using suffering as a faithful creator to make you more like him. And he is unfailing. Oh, just dwell on the attributes of God. God cannot fail. That impurity is going to be removed. That sin's going to be exposed. You will look more like, gee, he can't fail. What are we scared of? How can we fear? God can't fail and God won't reject us. This is a great day. He won't consume us. I think about God's words to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 43. Tough time for them. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, same terminology Peter's using here. Interesting, isn't it? But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Ah, interesting. Peter's been hammering that truth home to them as well. You didn't create yourself. God chose you. God ordained that you would be saved. God did all this. God has created you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, sounds like suffering to me, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, let alone consumed. Nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place. Did he not do that for us? He put his own son in our place. And other peoples in exchange for your life, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. What was Israel's story? One of suffering. Why? To purify them. Not to destroy them. Trust his perfect character. Trust that he will not begin failing with your suffering. He won't change anything about the way he uses suffering with you. He'll only use it for your good, Christian. He'll only use it to take out the sin that is such an affront to him that caused the death of his only son. He'll continue to remove that so that you look more like him. 
so that we can say the end is worth the refining. We lay on our deathbed someday and we say, all the suffering, all the embarrassment, all the humility, all the things that exposed my sin so that I could bring those to Jesus and confess those and be forgiven of those and, and restored and strengthened to have victory over them. It was all worth it. You know what wasn't worth it? Hiding my sin. Living in fear because of my sin. Oh, praise God. He's a faithful creator. And he's going to see this through. Christian, will you continue in faith? Believing and trusting him. Who is doing, even right now, he is doing what is right. Will you keep believing? Will you keep trusting? Will you not despair and run? Rest. And what God is doing through your suffering. Unbeliever, I've addressed you already. But let me address you again. Will you this day believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you confess your sins to one who is eager and ready to hear you confess what you are and whom you need? Lord Jesus, I am a sinner out and out in all of my being. And I need you to save me. No one else will do. Save me. So that your sufferings will not be final. So that your suffering will not be fatal. So that your suffering can become one of joy and refinement. Fitting you for heaven. Would you believe that? Would you confess that today? Turn to Christ. Be saved from your sin. And His cleansing work will be the greatest joy of your life. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can trust You. Thank You that the fires of affliction for those who believe are not fatal nor are they final They are temporal and they are purposeful to make us more like Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, as we come now to the table that you instituted and set for us to feast in your goodness. May we rejoice in the suffering that you accomplished for us. And Father, may we even rejoice in the suffering that you continue in us, knowing this, that Christ took our eternal, final, and fatal suffering. May we celebrate around you, Lord Jesus, this morning as we observe what you've done. And we pray this in your precious name, that you would be honored and glorified. Amen.